Amen. Amen. So today we're uh, kind of wrapping up this series we've been on this month in regards to grace. And, uh, you know, the more I talk about grace, the, the more, you know, I want to talk about grace because I feel like grace is very much a misunderstood thing within the church. For those of you who still, are, you know, I'm not totally sure, like I've heard the word, but I don't know what it means. Grace, in its simplest definition, is unmerited favor from God, meaning it's God doing something for you that you don't deserve, that you haven't earned, that's simply because he loves you and he chooses to do this for you. And the biggest aspect of grace that God has shown us is salvation. Uh, as sinners, we deserve death. We deserve complete separation from God. But God loved us so much that he showed his grace by sending his one and only son to die on the cross and to be able to fulfill the law, the mandate, the, the penalty for sin, so that you and I can now have a relationship with God. We didn't earn it. We don't deserve it. There's nothing we could do to pay it back. It is because of the grace of God that we have that. And we experience grace every day. You woke up this morning, the grace of God. You're breathing right now, the grace of God. You didn't get hit by a car on your way here, the grace of God. The grace of God is with you all the time, whether you recognize it or not. And so I think it's important for us to really begin to understand what it means to live by grace because a lot of us, we get frustrated in this walk with God because instead of living under grace, we try to live under our own uh, hubris, our own work, our own effort, and ultimately that will fail. So Paul, in, the, in, in almost all of his writings, at some point or another, he makes this big emphasis of grace. And part of why he needs to do this is because he's talking to a group of people, the Gentiles and the Jews, Gentiles, anyone who wasn't Jewish, who everything they've ever known is something that they've tried to earn. This is the first time, and even with a lot of major world religions, it's all about earning this place. This is the first time that they're really beginning to understand, no, 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 God already earned it for you. You just have to live under it now. It's like saying, God purchased this gift for you. You don't have to go back to the store and purchase it again. It's already yours. And now you just got to learn how to play with it, right? Now you just got to learn how to involve yourself with it. And so Paul, throughout his scriptures, he's having this argument, especially when it comes to Jewish people, because for all their history, they lived under what was called the law. The law is a set of rules and regulations that were set in place in order to be in right standing with God. The problem with the law, and God talks about it all the time, is that it is made impossible to show you that no one can live righteously enough to earn favor with God. None of us, and anyone in this room, is perfect enough that they deserve what God can give you. And so the whole purpose of the law really is to show you how far away from God you are and how you need someone to fulfill that, which is what Jesus came and did. So Paul is having this conversation over and over again, and we spent the last couple of weeks looking at Romans chapter five, and where he talks about the abundance of grace and where sin increases, faith, uh, grace increases even more, meaning you can't out-sin grace. There's no such thing as grace running out. No matter what you do, no matter where you are, there is grace for you in Christ Jesus. And when he says all this, naturally people start to think, but if you do that, aren't people gonna abuse God? If, if there's infinite grace, if God will always forgive you for everything, then what's stopping people from just doing whatever they want and then just asking God to forgive them? What's stopping people from 
outwardly sinning day in, day in out, and then showing up on the Sunday, saying a few prayers, and then getting ready to sin all over again the rest of the week. And so they're having this argument with Paul. No, no, no. If we live by grace, then there'll be nothing but chaos because nothing will stop people from living a sinful life. And the problem is they still have this law mentality. Let me tell you something. The law never stopped people from sinning. You can put, you can put any law you want right now on the books and it won't stop people. Hey, listen, I praise God that, that we don't have that Roe v. Wade thing anymore, but that's not gonna stop abortions, unfortunately, because that's a matter of the heart. You know, we, we stopped slavery a number of years ago in this country. Slavery still exists all around the world because that's a matter of the heart. You can put every law you want. There's gun laws, right? We got strict gun laws. People still die by gunshots every weekend. And, and I'm not trying to get political. Don't argue with me because I don't care that much. My point is you can have every law in the book that you want and it will never stop the human heart from sinning. That's what the Old Testament is an example of. That no matter how many laws they had, and there was a lot of them, people still find a way to sin. And so Paul is saying, no, no, no. The law is never gonna stop people from sinning, but grace empowers you to no longer sin. And so he goes into it in the next chapter, in Romans chapter six, and I want you to focus in on verse one and two. Listen to what he says. He's kind of summing up what they've been talking about with grace. And he says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? He's saying, so, so is the point now that, uh, hey, let's just keep on sinning because no matter what, God's going to give us grace? No. We don't live to abuse grace. See, when we were in our sin, before we knew Christ, we were dead to our sin. And now that part is gone. Who we were before Christ is over. So we no longer live in sin. Now we live by grace. And that's not who I am anymore. Now I am this person in Christ. Here's what you need to understand. The grace of God uh, does not give us freedom to sin. It gives us freedom from sin. Okay, the grace of God doesn't give you the freedom to sin. It gives you the freedom from sin. Anything else is cheap grace or not grace at all. Okay, if you think that the grace of God is your enabler to do whatever you want, then you haven't understood grace. And that's what Paul is trying to help you understand. He said, no, no, grace doesn't give you the freedom to sin. Those who truly understand and appreciate what the grace of God means are actually empowered to not continue to sin. And I think there's a number of reasons we see throughout the New Testament that give us uh, uh, an opportunity or even more a, a purpose behind why we shouldn't sin. Because here's the reality. When you got saved, you didn't just all of a sudden stop sinning altogether, okay? We, we are in a sinful nature. From time to time, we might stumble, we might fall. We're no longer slaves to sin. Sin no longer has to have control over your life. But at the same time, you might mess up a time or two. You might you know, reprimand your children too hard, or you might talk to your spouse in an inappropriate way. Your mind might wander a little bit in a lustful thought. And again, that doesn't say we don't trip. The purpose is we don't fall and stay fallen. Grace enables us to get up and to continue to move forward and to live a life that is not a slave to sin anymore, but a slave to righteousness. And so there's a few thoughts I have here that I think are gonna help us that I feel like if we understand this about grace, it'll help you to sin less. The first one is this, understanding the value of God's grace. The value of God's grace. You know, there, there's a number of times when we do an event, I literally had this conversation with somebody. They're like, well, we can do it for free. I go, no, 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 
don't do it for free. Because if you do it for free, people don't show up. And this is true, and I, if you're like, why, does, why is this event five bucks? What's five bucks gonna do? Because $5 will get you to come to it. You know how I know? Aldi. You push that card all the way back because you need your quarterback. Right? Go to any other store, the whole parking lot is filled with carts. And I get annoyed. The carts are on the grass. The carts are in between cars. The best parking lot of any grocery store is Aldi. Why? Because they figured out you value a quarter more than 50 steps. <clears throat> so we'll go all the way back. And I kid you not, I don't carry change around. I have one quarter always in my pocket for when I go to Aldi. It's my Aldi quarter. It's special. It's unique. It's just for that. Every now and then, my daughter will come with her BGMC thing. I'm like, I'm sorry, baby. I only have my Aldi quarter. I can't. I can't give you that one. That is, that is unto the Lord. That's, that's anointed and specific. But because you put a quarter into that cart, you value it enough to go take it back. When you don't put the quarter in the cart, you don't value it, and so you leave it for the worker to go and pick it up. Which, by the way, I was the worker. That's why I get so annoyed when I see people. Just, you're just lazy, especially when the cart corral is like two car spaces over. I'm like, come on, bro. Like, you're a jerk. Like, just, just put it over there. <laughs> so, so I think part of why we maybe don't appreciate grace is because we don't understand the value of grace, the price that was paid for you to have grace. Grace is not cheap. Grace was not free, at least for God. God paid a price for the grace that he's shown you. When he sent his one and only son to brutally die and be executed on the cross, that was the price of grace. When all the sin of the world, every sin you have ever committed was laid on his shoulders while hanging on that cross, that was the price of grace. So when you value that, when you recognize, no, 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 this grace wasn't cheap, and so I cannot treat it cheaply, right? It's like some kids nowadays, I see them with these really expensive shoes and they, they got three, $400 shoes on and they waddle like penguins just so they don't crease the top of their shoe. Why? Because they value it. They get, they get home and they clean it and they polish it. Their whole room is disgusting, but the shoes are smooth. <laughs> Why? They don't pay rent for the room, but they paid a lot of money for the shoes and they try to keep it. The more you value something, the more intentional you are about keeping it good. And so I think some of us, the reason we don't live under grace the way we should is because maybe we don't fully understand the value of it. Maybe we haven't recognized the price that was paid. Listen, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 through 29. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of truth, no sacrifice for sin is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment, of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. He's saying, right, listen, this is harsh language, but he's saying, listen, if you know the truth and now without ignorance choose to continue to live in a life of sin, how can we have another sacrifice for you. There is no other sacrifice. There was only one sacrifice. So the only thing you have now is the fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. 
anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sacrificed them and who has insulted the spirit of grace? When you don't value grace, it's an insult to grace. And that's, look, the scripture is very clear on it. Like, we deserve punishment when we trample on the blood of Christ and we insult the spirit of grace. And what, is that, what does that look like? When you choose to live a life of sin, what does that mean? I know this is wrong. I know I shouldn't do it. It's not just because Pastor Joey told me or my leadership told me. I, I, I feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit. I know I'm not supposed to do it, but I'm gonna do it anyway. And you know what? I'll just ask for forgiveness. You are insulting the spirit of grace. That's what scripture says. You are trampling on the blood that was spilled to purchase that grace for you. You are, as my parents would say, malagradecido, right? Unappreciative. You don't, you don't respect what's been given to you. And listen, I think we all can understand that. We've seen people like that, and some of it is our children, some of it's other family members, where you're like, you don't value what was done for you, what was laid out for you. And because you don't value it, the very thing you do is an insult to the price that was paid to purchase that for you. Listen, we have to recognize that grace is incredibly expensive. It cost our Lord his life. It cost him pain. Now, again, God is good enough. He picked it back up again. That doesn't eliminate what he endured on the cross. And again, God's not saying you got to pay me back. The, the scriptures are clear. It was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. In other words, he saw your opportunity to live under grace and with a smile on his face that it is worth it. So, so it's not about, well, you know, I'm sorry, I'll pay you back later. No, no, it's about appreciating what was sacrificed for you to have what you have. It would be as if, you know, you, you, you work really hard, you, you do two extra overtime jobs just to get your kid that one Christmas present they want, and then you see them treating it like nothing, tossing it around. Because why? Well, I didn't pay for it. It's not a big deal to me. Meanwhile, you ever done this? I, I used to, when I first started working, I started doing math differently in my head. So like, uh, go, I see if you go with me with this. We would go out to eat and it'd be like, do you want to order this? And I'm like, $20? Man, that's like, that's three hours of work. <laughs> nah, man, that's not worth three hours of work. You know, I was $5 an hour at that time. So I started calculating things like that. I'm like, hey, do you want to go out and do that? I was like, oh, that's like two and a half days worth of work. That's not worth two and a half days worth of work. My value was different because it wasn't just what I was receiving, it's what I paid to receive it. And so because I, I recognize what was paid to receive it, now I judge whether or not it's worth it differently. Yes. Listen, try to think about it in this way. The next time you're tempted to go back into that old sinful nature, to, to start to do things that you know hurt the heart of God, I want you to take a moment and look at the cost. Okay, this is gonna be 10 minutes worth of pleasure when it costs my Lord hours worth of pain. And it insults him all over again. Is this 10 minutes of pleasure worth it's trampling on the spirit of grace. It's just not worth it. It's just not worth it. And I've done that from time to time. There might be a pretty girl standing by and I won't indulge. I just look and I go, you know what? I've, I've thought this to myself. That's not worth losing my entire family. That's not worth losing my entire reputation. I count the cost. I weigh the value of what I have.
And in the same way, when you can constantly evaluate what grace means, and here's another good indicator of that. You know what grace is? The fact that God has struck you dead every time you've sinned. That's grace. And so when you realize after you've sinned that the Lord was merciful and graceful and gave you another opportunity to get back up again, that hopefully prevents you from continually falling into that same pattern of sin because what you value is greater than what you spend. Does that make sense, church? Number two, not just the value of grace, but do you recognize the humility of God's grace? The humility of God's grace. We can appreciate God's grace more when it is compared to the light of our own depravity. When you recognize how far from God you were, you appreciate the distance that grace had to travel to reach you. I think some of us have forgotten how far we were. The problem occurs when we've been saved long enough or have overcome maybe some major sin issues in our life that we begin to coast away from God's grace and rely more on our own achievements. Because, you know, I've been Christian for a long time and I've been going to church for a long time and I don't struggle with all those major stuff that I used to struggle with. So, you know what, God, thank you in the beginning, but I got it now. And I I do this on my own and, you know, I got my own little standards and my accountability and my checks and my rules. And, you know, if I just do that, then I don't really need grace as much as I did like when I first got saved. I hate to break it to you, but you need grace for eternity. Listen, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 through 10. Paul is speaking here. And, and Paul just, there's a few people that were arguing and boasting about who was better. And Paul goes in there just like a, a straight G. He's just like, listen, guys, if anybody has reason to brag, I'm him. And he goes into this and he says in verse 7, even though I have received such wonderful revelations from God. You know what he's talking about? The fact that he got to see heaven. He said, guys, God has allowed me to actually peer into heaven. I don't know if any of y'all can brag about that. Like I've done some cool things in my life. I haven't seen heaven yet. And Paul is saying, listen, God has given me incredible revelations, but to keep me from becoming proud, (coughs) another translation says, to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me and keep me from becoming proud. Three different times I begged the Lord to take it away. Each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I am glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in insults, hardships, persecutions, and trouble that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Well, what does Paul talk about? Now, most scholars... You know, they debate a little bit. The scriptures aren't very clear on what this thorn in his side was. We don't know if it was a literal demon. We don't know if it was uh, just the enemy maybe reminding Paul of who he was before he got saved. You got to understand, Paul persecuted the church. Paul hunted down Christians and, and made it so that they would be put to death in very gruesome and disgusting ways. Like, Paul was a wretched man. And so some might argue, or I've heard it float around, maybe it was the memory of who he used to be that kept him humble. Like, yeah, you've gone to see heaven, but remember, some of those people in heaven are there because you killed them, you persecuted them. And so there's a balance in that. But here's what we need to understand. Sometimes 
God allows certain things to occur in our life to keep you from becoming proud. Because you don't realize how much you need grace until you need grace. And so every now and then when things are going really, really well, you start to think, well, I'm good. I don't, I don't need the grace of God because I got it. And so what God does is he just lifts his pinky a little bit. And then just a little bit of stuff happens. And you're like, oh, oh, God, help me. He's like, yeah, you need my grace still. And again, I, I hate to do this, but we got to go back with children. Children get to a point, even when they're really, really young, where they think they don't need you. I'm independent. Even I remember when I was, my, my mama told me I was like third or fourth grade. She would walk me to school, but I made her walk two blocks behind me because it, was, it wasn't cool. I was like, mommy, no, leave me alone. I got this. I got this. Just go over there. I don't know why she did it, but she did. And she would walk like two blocks behind me, enough to see me, but enough that I wouldn't look at her. And I was like, I'm on, I got this. There is this sinful nature aspect of you that yearns to be independent, independent from God. And so what God will do from time to time is he'll allow certain things to happen in your life to remind you, you still need me. Don't get so far away that you think you got this on your own. My grace is all you need and it's sufficient for you. Because here's the reality. Some of us think, and I talked about this a little bit on Wednesday, we look at other people who sin or sin differently and don't know the Lord yet and we start to judge them. And what's the old saying? If not for the grace of God, therefore go I. Oh, you're not different, not you. The difference is grace. You receive grace and now you get to live under it. So who are you to judge somebody who has yet to receive the same grace that you have the pleasure of living under? Those things keep you dependent on God's grace because when things go well, we tend to believe the lie that we are self-sufficient. We've never been self-sufficient. Even when you weren't a believer, you were not self-sufficient. You either belong to God or belong to the enemy. And if you're one of those people that say, no, I'm in the middle, the middle belongs to the enemy. Okay, so you, there's one or the other. And if you are with God, then it is only by the grace of God that you get to do that. And so I think, church, if we can humble ourselves in understanding, Lord, if not for your grace, I would be right back where I was before I met you. We would learn to walk in it a little bit tighter. Third thing is this. We need to understand the transformation of God's grace. Paul makes a point of saying in Romans chapter six that because of God's grace, you are dead to who you were in sin and now you are alive in Christ. Here's the truth. The grace that saves us also changes us. You cannot be saved and stay the same as you were before you received Christ. Something changes about you. Things begin to change about you. And, and a lot of us get nervous about that early on when we start a relationship with God. Well, well no, I don't want to change. Trust me, it's good change. And, and it's not always, you know, sometimes we make it very radical and, and we make it very extreme. You know what some of my favorite changes that I see grace do in the life of a new believer is the continence on their face. Those of you who've been Christian long enough, you might have seen this from time and time in the church. Someone walks in, their face is, is angry, is hurt, is, is annoyed. It's just, it's this face that says, don't even talk to me. I don't want to be around any of you. And then you see the Lord begin to work on their life. And then you see grace begin to bloom in their hearts. And all of a sudden, the continence on their face begins to change. Now, all of a sudden, the angriest person in this room has the biggest smile. And what is that? What's the grace of God? It began to transform their heart. It began to transform their life. Grace changes you. You cannot be saved and be the same. The grace of God brings about a transformation in your life. For some, it may be radical. 
Man, I, I used to be this and this and this and man, the extreme, the worst of the worst and man, you wouldn't even believe that now when you look at me. For some, it's gradual. Little things that chip away. Because again, I think sometimes we get defeated when in the first year of your salvation, everything hasn't radically changed. Well, listen, it took 40 years for you to be like this. It's not always gonna take 40 days for you to come out of that. You are a work in progress. And for me, the goal is just getting better every day. I'm, I'm, listen, I'm not where I wanna be, but I'm also not where I used to be. And by the grace of God, I'm gonna get to where I need to be. And so that's the goal is understanding that. For others, it's a gradual thing, but no one comes to the true saving grace of Jesus Christ and stays the same. This is a great barometer of if you're living by grace or not. Is there change in your life? Are things changing? The, your behavior, the way you treat your spouse, the way you treat your children, the way you interact at work, the way you carry yourself, the way you talk, the way you act, the way you love. Like things have to begin to change and hopefully not for the worse, but to become more like Christ. The Bible uses, or not the Bible, but we use the term sanctification. Sanctification is a fancy Christian word that simply means the process of becoming more and more like Christ. That is the change that happens in your life where you were once like this and now you begin to look more and more like Christ. Does that mean your personality changes? No. No, I, I was a goofball before I got saved and I'm a goofball after I got like that. I'm still, my personality is still intact. The jokes I made changed by the grace of God for the most part. I'm a work in progress, but I'm not where I used to be. And so that's a barometer we have to look at. If you are fighting the change in your heart, you are fighting the grace of God. If you are actively resisting the pull that the Holy Spirit has given you to transform and to be molded into the likeness of God, you are resisting the grace of God. And if you are willing to live under the grace of God, then naturally transformation begins to happen because the proximity of God begins to do that in you. We talked about this uh, yesterday in our growth track. I often go to the UK, we're planning a trip this year uh, to London, and whenever I'm in the UK, it takes maybe a half a day or two, and I got a British accent. It's not a great one, but it's a British accent. And, and it's not, I kid you not, it's not on purpose, I get embarrassed when it leaks out, but it's immersion. When you get surrounded by people with accents, you pick up the accent. And so the same thing happens with immersion in your relationship with God. When you are surrounded by grace, you start talking grace. You start acting grace. You start loving grace. You start giving more grace. Why? Because it's immersion. It's being caught up in the presence of God. Listen, let me go into uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 9 through 10. Paul again says, for I am the least of the apostles. I don't even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. It's critical to emphasize that the change is not the result of human effort alone. <clears throat> the church is not here for behavior modification. So you can change all the habits you want, but that doesn't mean that your heart has changed. 
And the problem a lot of times is we try to force transformation with behavior modification and rules and regulations. And so listen, I, I, got, you know, I got this app to help me start looking at these sites and I got accountability and I, and I meet at this group three times a week. And, and, and listen, that's all great and, and I'm sure it's all helpful, but it will never be a substitute for the grace of God. You need it all. And so by the grace of God, as you lean into the grace of God, and what that means is God is the one that's going to change me and move me from glory to glory. It's not simply based on my own hard work. Do I have to do something? Yes, it's easier to steer a moving car than a parked car. And so you got to give God something to work with. But God's ultimately the one that is steering that vehicle that is moving you from place to place. You have a part to play. That's obedience to what the Holy Spirit is leading you to do. So when the Holy Spirit tells you, hey, listen, that, that conversation, that friend, that work, that's not gonna be a good friend for you. That's, that's threatening your marriage right now. Cut that friend off. Erase their number. Don't talk to them anymore. Oh, but that's kind of rude, don't you think? So is cheating on your spouse. Cut the relationship. Are you willing to be obedient to the Holy Spirit? And what's the Holy Spirit going to do? It's going to enable you to cut the relationship. It's going to empower you to move on, to value things that need to be valued, and to turn away from sin that needs to be turned away from. Romans eleven six. and if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. So grace by its own definition has nothing to do with your works, with your effort to make it happen. It has everything to do with your obedience under that grace. And the grace will help you to move forward. How so? In our fourth point, the lessons of God's grace. Grace is a wonderful teacher. And grace is a patient teacher that walks you through how to live under grace. How to no longer live under sin, but to now begin to live with the understanding that you can go and you can still mess up and get back up and walk forward again. Here's a critical aspect of grace, and I'm just going to chime in on this for a moment. Because the difference between your own effort and grace. You will inevitably stumble in your walk with God. Inevitably. Grace is the power to get up and try again. Works is I failed and I failed and I failed, so I quit. But notice how many eyes were in that statement. The grace of God never fails. The grace of God will always cleanse me and pick me up and move me forward so long as I'm repentant and willing to do that. And so if I am repentant and willing, I'm obedient to the voice of the Holy Spirit and the guidance of his grace, then I can overcome any of these sins. And that's the reality. That's why Paul says, no, 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 sin is dead. It doesn't have power over you anymore. The only power sin has is what power you give it. But you have the power and the freedom to live by grace, to no longer be conquered by that sin. There is no sin that can overcome you when you are full of the Holy Spirit and the power of grace. There might be some habits that'll take a while to break, but God will enable you. There might be some things that you want more than you want grace and God will help transform you. But you have everything you need to overcome all the sin in your life so that there is no excuse. Well, God, you know that was just really hard for me to do. Well, I never asked you to do it by yourself, did I? Listen, Titus chapter two, verse 11 through 12. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. And what does that grace do? It teaches us to say no 
to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. Listen to that again. What does grace do? It teaches us to say no. Listen, some of our problem isn't the power of sin, it's the lack of no in your life. You just don't know how to say no sometimes. Hey man, we're, we're all getting together after work, we're gonna hit up the bar, you know, we're gonna check out some girls. Man, you wanna come hang out? No. What are they gonna do, arrest you and drag you to the party? <laughs> Here's what I've discovered in my life over and over again. When you are consistent with your values and who God called you to be, it is the unbeliever who will defend you more than anybody else because they respect you. Even if they don't agree with you, they respect you. And so there were times I remember in high school when we'd be hanging out and we'd be, you know, whatever, and, and there'd be some people trying to pressure me to do some things that I didn't want to do and that I didn't believe in doing. And my other friends, who were very much doing those things, would get in the face of these people and say, Joey doesn't do that. Oh, come on, man, like just one time. Hey, Joey doesn't do that. And I'm just sitting there like, yeah, Joey doesn't do that. <laughs> but but the, the look on their eyes, it was like, keep pressuring him and I'll punch you in the mouth. Why? Because even though they didn't live it, they respected it. And I think part of them, and they would say it in a very drunken stupor, man, I want to be like you. It's like, okay, can we have this conversation when you're not drunk? Like, you keep only wanting to have this conversation when you're high. Let's, let's talk about it later. But I've always, I've always looked at it and go, man, it's incredible the respect that people have when you are consistent with who you say you are. Listen, grace teaches us to say no. No to what? Ungodliness, worldly passions, and to help you live self-control. Some of us lack self-control, not because things too hard, it's because you haven't figured out how to live under grace. And when you do those things, when you live under grace, you're upright, godly lives in this present age. And again, let me, let me kind of recoup what that means when it comes to grace. Grace is an opportunity so that when you fail, you don't feel ashamed and abandoned. You understand God is enabling me and God will equip me to say no. The first time you might say yes when you should say no, but you'll recognize God's grace, you'll appreciate it, you'll value it, you'll be moved by it, and then you'll say, no, I, I, I don't wanna do that anymore. Oh, why, because Christians, can, no, it, you know, it has nothing to do with what you think. It has everything to do with what my God thinks and the, the presence of the Holy Spirit on me, the conviction that comes from his presence. It's not just that I don't do that, I don't wanna do that anymore. Here's, here's where you know grace has done its work. And those of you who've been believers long enough, you might get it. When you go back into some of those same spaces that you used to be in before you knew Christ, isn't there an incredible uncomfortability there? I remember one time in my life, I'll admit this publicly, one time in my life, I went to a club because my friend, it was actually people from church that invited me. It was a birthday, like, it's just a birthday thing. I was like, okay, I was 21. I was like, I've never, I'll, I'll go. It was the most awkward experience of my life. Like I'm just standing there and it's really loud. So I was like, here, just hold this bottle so you don't look totally weird. So I was just like, like totally uncomfortable. I remember my friend, she, she was like, why don't you go dance with that girl? You want me to just bump up against that stranger that I've never met or talked to? This is the most uncomfortable place. I was so uncomfortable that people thought I worked there as a bouncer and they kind of kept asking me. I was like, I don't work here. I don't know. And then I thought, maybe I should work here. Um, 
And it was about 15 minutes, 20 minutes. I looked at my friend who was also a Christian who was also horribly uncomfortable. I'm like, should we just leave? He's like, yeah, I think we should just leave. Why? Because I felt like a fish out of water. That is not where God has called me to be. That is not what God has called me to do. And again, even stuff that I used to do, like, man, I, I, I cursed like a sailor. I just, I had a horrible potty mouth. And there would be times where I'd gather on my friends uh, that were from like school or from, you know, neighborhood or people that I grew up with. And they'd all be talking on how I used to talk. And I'm like, oh, you shouldn't say that. <laughs> like all of a sudden I'm like, this, this just doesn't, this just sounds gross now. Why? Because I'm not who I used to be. And God has transformed me. And it's not that I can't do that. I don't have a desire to do that anymore. That's just not who I am. Once I was that, and now I'm not. And by the grace of God, I don't ever want to be again. Worship team, if you can help me out. It's interesting, as I was going through this series and I was finding like scripture after scripture, I'm like, man, Paul really talks a lot about grace. He keeps hammering this over and over and over again. And then I realized, I think it's because Paul understood that he is one of the greatest examples of God's grace. Believer, here's what you need to understand. We, as believers, are the greatest example of living by God's grace. We are a living example of that. We're a living billboard of God's love, mercy, forgiveness, and grace which is why we can't afford to abuse grace. This might be some of the most critical aspects. We are Christ's representatives of grace to this world. So what does that mean? That means when we profess to be believers, but then act in a way that believers do not act, it taints the grace that's been given to us. And it makes it less appealing to someone who values it. I was thinking about this. Uh, my mom told me uh, the first time she went to church, her coworker was trying to encourage her to go to church with her. She grew up uh, Catholic and then immigrated to the States and really didn't have anywhere. And her friend kept trying to encourage her to come to her church. So she said, yeah, she'll go to the church. And she said, I walked into the church and the first person I see to greet her was a guy that worked at my job. And immediately I thought, this is the kind of church you have? Because that guy would sit at the bottom of the stairwell when the girls with dresses and skirts would walk up and he would look up their skirts as they were walking up the stairwells. She's like, so the first person I see is a pervert. And that is the representation of church that she has. Listen, you, you gotta understand, and I, I've thought about this myself, how I act with strangers. That stranger might be someone who walks into my church one day. And if I'm having road rage and, and, and flipping somebody off on the street and then we end up pulling into the same parking lot and they look at me up here and they're like, that's the guy that flipped me off. <laughs> it taints the grace that God had shown me. Listen, we have to be careful. You never know when you're gonna run into someone that God has set up a divine appointment for you to be the walking billboard of grace. And you might be the very reason someone doesn't want anything to do with God. Because they look at you and go, well, if you are an example of what God's grace does, I'd rather not have it. Because you're a hypocrite. You're a liar. And again, I'm not saying perfection, but I'm saying we have to be careful as examples of God's grace. What others can do, we just can't anymore. 
even little things. Sometimes we get caught up in the border. Like, well, you know, the Bible doesn't say that's a sin. There are a lot of things that the Bible doesn't say is a sin. And that's why God's given us the Holy Spirit to bring conviction in those gray areas that we like to try to. Here's the thing. If you like to try, if you're mitigating, if you're trying to be legalistic about what's a sin and what's not a sin, you're already dancing on the line you shouldn't be dancing on. Because you're trying to find out how much you can get away with and still be a Christian. Again, that would be like me having a conversation with my wife. Like, okay, so like, how, like, how close to cheating can I get, babe? All right, like, can I, can I, is this okay? Like, if I'm having that conversation with my wife, I promise you, y'all will be looking for a new lead pastor because I will not be alive anymore. That's not a conversation Cicely's going to have with me. And so we can't get caught up in that. No, no, for us, I want to live so far under grace that it removes me as much as it can from everything else. Going back, Paul speaking to his son in the faith, Timothy. And in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12 through 14, says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Why don't you stand with me, church? I think the reason Paul wrote so much about grace is because he had a deep appreciation of it. He understood, out of all the sinners, I'm the worst. I don't deserve the grace that's been shown to me that God would trust me to be an ambassador of his word, even though I was a blasphemer, a persecutor of his own people, a violent human being, and yet grace was poured out abundantly over me. So I want you to take a moment, and I want to talk to the believers in this room. If you have said yes to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I'd like you to bow your head for just a moment. And I want you to reflect on who you were before you experienced that grace. How far removed were you from God? How far did grace have to travel to get to where you were? And I'm not saying you were an evil, horrible human being. I'm just saying, how distant were you from God? And even further, where would you be right now if the grace of God had not intervened in your life? I think we lack an appreciation of grace when we fail to recognize just how much grace is covered. So I want you to just take a minute, reflect for yourself. And in a moment, the worship team is gonna lead us in a song. And then I want us to pray. Thank you, Father. Come on, just take a moment to appreciate grace see how far it's taking you.